Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 76, and I'm Roger Pang from the Johns Hopkins Data Science Lab, and I'm here with Hillary Parker of Stitch Fix. Did you have anything burning that you wanted to talk about? Not really. No. Yeah. I'm like barely a data scientist anymore. <laughs> why, why do you say that? Oh, because I feel like I think a lot more about... I mean, you're right. I shouldn't say that because I'm thinking a lot about like... I end up spending a lot of my time right now in right now specifically doing strategy stuff. Um, so like coordinating with a PM because we have this like kind of multi-dimensional approach for this new data source we want. And there's things that she can move forward and there's things that I only I can move forward for now. And like, just because the internal org, I don't even want to say politics, but just like the constraints of the org are such that like I, I can do things that like she couldn't do essentially. Right. Um, and so I'm spending a lot of time like strategizing with her and like doing opportunity sizing or trying to do user testing or all this stuff. And I'm, it's, I mean, it is the thing it's, it's what's necessary to do if you're doing this independent full stack data scientist thing where like in order to get a new data source, sometimes it means building the product to get the data source. Okay. <laughs> That's actually what my talk is about, about um, Chris Moody, the data scientist who made um, this app that was like essentially Tinder for clothes. Right. <laughs> and, you know, he had to essentially build the entire app himself. Like he was the only engineer on it. And that included like the front end code for getting it into Facebook Messenger, as well as the entire ETL for like getting getting the data in, which ended up being like very heavy lifting because it's like we have over a billion ratings now. So that in itself is like a it's just like a high performance. <laughs> it's a high performing technical product. And um, I mean, he he eventually got help. But the first few, you know, first few really like the first year at least was all him. And um so I'm kind of doing my own version of that. I have more help. Like I was able to kind of, I think he just kind of took the, like he was really, I think he was like excited by the challenge of building it. Whereas I'm like, I would love help to build it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but yeah, it's, it's. I feel like, you know, new things only move forward because of one person, I think. I think you're right. Yeah. It's because ultimately you're just gonna have so much inertia, like, like the thing I'm running into is just that we like there's real like budget not not budgetary constraints but like we hire stylists and they have a lot of work to do and like asking them to do something else is it's operationally just a really big deal and so making so it's it's much easier to iterate on their existing process than to like introduce something new and so it's just, yeah, like that's one version of a constraint. I mean, the same thing could be said for client-facing stuff, which is what my partner's working on. Like, So anyway. I guess uh, just to rephrase what I meant, I meant like there's always one person who's kind of pushing everything along, right? Oh, totally. It's not like yeah. there's only one person involved. It's just that it always takes one person to kind of like just move, just push it forward day by day. Yeah. yeah. And what I feel like where I feel like I'm really lucky within the org is that I have a lot of I have a lot of passion for one specific way I want to implement this new paradigm, essentially. And other like the rest of the org has other opinions about what to do. And like I want to also encourage that. But like as the person who like had the original kind of desire or push for it and like I mean like came up with the idea essentially I'm the only one who will stay really committed to that original vision right right, right. where and and again it's like I'm totally open to because I think other people are seeing aspects of this that would be helpful in other avenues but for me like I know I want to do this one thing right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm and I'm not constrained by like Oh, and here's my, you know, OKR for this quarter and I need to do this. I mean, we do have OKRs, which is, do you know those? No, what is those? It's um, objective, objectives and key results. Okay. So the objective is sort of an overarching, like, you know, we want to like build 1500 widgets or, or no, no, no. I, sorry, take it back. It's like, we want to like 
advance the use of widgets throughout like the world or something. And then the the KR, like the key result would be like produce 1500 widgets Got by it. End yeah. of quarter. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so the product team and the operational teams have much more, they're much more constrained by the OKRs, especially when you're a public company. Right. right sure. Yeah. Whereas like I'm, you know, <laughs> part of the freewheeling algorithms work. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, that's like a little, that's like facetious, but you know, we're because we're a little bit more back end, right? So just to bring us back around though, I take it that the, all the things that you have to do for this are not traditional data science to- <laughs> activities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one that's most traditional data scientist, I would say, is like getting user testing on the concept. But that in itself is like. Like the part that I'm doing is not the part that a data scientist on a collaborative team would do because it's like actually coordinating, you know, the uh, coordinating the user testing and set up the surveys or the, you know, in-person sessions or whatever. And so that part is usually the PM or the person like the UX partner, not the data scientist. Right, right. So, yeah. Like I had this moment where I was like the PM partner I was working with, like, why don't you work with the design people and i was just like oh i literally don't know how to reach out to them (laughs) like this would be like such an odd thing where it's like an algorithm person going directly to them so like there's no there's no channel for that communication yeah i mean there could be like i can definitely do that you know it's it's not we're not like a rigid org where things like that can't happen but it's just like those aren't anytime you're doing something new there's going to be patterns that you have to you have to be the trailblazer roger so that's (laughs) okay Yeah. (laughs) But I also, probably in academics, you're much more kind of used to this or I don't know. Used to what? Having to do everything yourself. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much what uh, being an academic is. (laughs) (laughs) Someone else, someone at this, at the, so I was just at the Women in Data Science Conference at Stanford and uh, some, one of the academics used that quote of like, you're a startup of one. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah. Although I don't, I feel like. I feel like that originated the the first time I heard it was from Hillary Mason. I'm not sure. First time I heard it was from you. So. Oh, okay. There we go. Yeah. So, that brilliant idea has been spread. Yeah, and I have to say my team is particularly small these days. Uh, oh, um, really? Yeah, well, it's just basically just me right now. Um, <laughs> About as small as it can get. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but you know, the meetings are really fun. You know, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, you know, I can, I, I have talked to myself a lot, you know. I was going to say the meetings with yourself. <laughs> play different roles. I, you know, change hats, you know. <laughs> Literally. Uh, yeah. Do you walk to the other side of the desk? <laughs> I, you know, that would, uh, that would help, I think. Yeah. <laughs> How do you manage that then? Because that's, that can be intimidating just to have the blank canvas. Well, you know, actually, this is a, something that I wanted to talk about with you. Oh, really? It's, it's a good segue, actually. Because, like, I'm, like, working on a paper now. And, you know, I don't have any students or postdocs to do the work. So I'm, like, doing the work, you know. Yeah. And I, I realize I haven't done this in a little while. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, you know, I, I feel like up until, you know, for, for a while now, I've been, like, managing people doing research, right? Which is obviously different from doing the research yourself, right? Yeah. So I have, you know, I, I haven't flexed those muscles in a little while. So um, I started using, I want to talk, one thing I want to talk to you about was notebooks, actually. Mm. Like Jupyter notebooks? Uh, ah, good question. No, like so. I've been <laughs> physical using, notebooks? Well, not physical, but like uh, you know the electronic version of a physical notebook. What is that? You know, like a notebook app. You know. Right, but what is the notebook app? <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? I don't know. Like, is it OneNote or? Yeah, I mean, there's a million of them. I use one called GoodNotes. Okay, all right. And uh, it's on my iPad, and I can like write oh. on it. And, um, and, uh, I, so I've, you know, so anyway, so in terms of the, my workflow for doing research, I, I want to talk about this because like, I feel like there's a lot of discussion about, there's a whole thing about like notebooks in data science, right? Whether they're like our Markdown or Jupyter notebooks or that's all I can think of, right? <laughs> <laughs> and there was a whole like notebook kerfuffle, I don't know, a couple of months, like maybe like a year ago, right? About which is better, right? Like on Twitter? Yeah, yeah. Where, yeah, I, I'm also gonna, like, take responsibility for this. <laughs> As, like, the number one notebook 
dissident, <laughs> vocal dissident out there. No, I will. Know. I think I, I was with you on that. So, but you were, yes, you were more vocal. And um, but Ihuisia wrote like a long blog post about the pluses and minuses of notebooks and our markdown. Um, but my main thing is that like, so I, it felt weird for me because I was like, you know, so like I would do some work, I would like make a plot, I would kind of like cut and paste it and stick it into the notebook, right? Ah. Uh. Really? Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. So like, it felt like really wrong, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'd yeah. have like this image in my notebook, and like I would you know scribble on it and make a note and be like, "This is what I was doing here." And then I would change some setting and make another plot and stick it right next to it. You know, cut and paste it into there. And uh, but it occurred. But I actually found it very useful. You're gonna. This is gonna. It uh, no, make you I'm, uncomfortable. I'm all ears. I can understand it. Uh, well, because okay, I think there's like different. You know, it's like the R Markdown notebook. Or the art markdown document, let's say, is there to kind of record your activity, right? And to provide a mechanism for reproducibility, I think primarily, right? And but the biggest problem I have with it is that, well, first of all, if you do, if you produce like a lot of results, um, then every time you build it, it like takes a while, right? But then if you if you but you don't necessarily want to like delete stuff, right? Right. Yeah, <laughs> I see what you're saying. Like you don't. You don't necessarily keep the plot you tried that failed in your R Markdown notebook. Right. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah. So, like, if you keep the same document, then at the end of the day, the, the notebook's, the, the document's just going to be like the finished product. Right. Um, the other, so that's one thing. The other thing is that, so it's not like, I feel like it's not a good, it's not a great document, a way for me to kind of like record the work product. Mm hmm. You know, it's like a, it's a good place to kind of converge on the final result, I think. And then you have like reproducibility, then you have the code, you've got the, everything's in one place, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But right. as I'm like working through different ideas, I don't find it to be a particularly great uh, tool for like trying new things and then deleting them or whatever, right? Right. Yeah. It's like, it's almost as if, so to go back to that conversation from a few weeks ago or a few episodes ago where there's that essentially that you know that image of like oh first you import the data then you tidy it then you're in the box you know and then you exit for communication it's like you want to record what happened in the box right not like and like the r markdown paradigm or just like reproducibility tools are really more about that exit ramp where you're doing the formal communication yeah well they're definitely more in that direction right um yeah so because like at the end of the day you're not going to hand someone a pdf of like 500 plots, right? I mean, probably not, right? Um, so, so that's what, and then, and, and, and also, I, the problem with the R mark, the other problem I have with the R markdown documents is that they're like totally linear, right? Um, so, if you want to compare a plot from like the beginning to like a plot near the end, like you can't do that really, unless you like move the code, right? Uh, and so, like in my notebook, I can just like drag it next to it, you know, drag one plot next to the other plot, and then I can just look at both of them, right? Um, and so, I don't know. I found it. I was like, it was like a revelation to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're really imitating what lab notebooks look like. Right. Like and, real lab notebooks. Yeah. But it's even better though, because they're like, you can like interact with them, you know? Right. Well, see now, okay. What if it were, I think what I would want to do if I was going to go down this radical path, which maybe I will, who knows? <laughs> I'm all paper now, as you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But what if you actually like printed out the graphs and then had a real notebook. Like, I feel like there would be something kind of satisfying about having the graphs in hand so that you could like hold them up to each other. You talk about literally cutting and pasting. Oh yeah. No, it's like have the graphs, cut them out into, you know, and then in your notebook, you could like paste two together or tape maybe, you know, yeah. and then write like, Oh, looking at this comparison made me think blah, blah, blah. Right. That's it. I mean, yeah. I think this is the closest it comes to that without me having to like walk down to the printer every five seconds. Yeah. But you could just get a printer in your office. I suppose. If you're really committed, you know. <laughs> I'm not. Put it that I'm, I want to make it clear. I'm not committed to the to the Hillary Parker only paper li- all paper lifestyle. I think I to me personally, I think that the 
digital notebook would erase like 80% of the benefit of the system here. <laughs> Cause I just, I don't know. I used to, I know like you probably remember in grad school, I took my notes on my, um, I had like a tablet computer and I just ultimately found that to be not effective. Like it, I didn't retain information the same way I did when it was pen to paper. Well, you first of all, you were a pioneer in that domain. Oh yeah, I mean, of course, I was trying some brand new. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I saw someone do it in in one of my last classes in undergrad, and I was like, "That's amazing!" And so I was all in. And ultimately, like I said, I I mean, once I was done with classes, I didn't use it as much, but I did use it for teaching, and I really liked it for that. I liked it enough that I bought a second tablet like halfway through grad school and continued like the, I had to be like windows because I mean, there was like some major compromises made. Well, so the other thing I like about the notebook, be it electronic or on paper is that you do have, you have to make some decisions uh, about what you're going to put in there. Like it's so like another thing with the R markdown document is that every, every like inch of code that you write is just in there. Right. And so, like, there's no, I feel like there's no processing that occurs. I mean, there's a little bit in terms of, like, you decide what to code. But if you try, like, 10 different things, then, you know, it's just all in there, right? Um, and so, but when you, like, transfer it to the notebook, you have to decide, okay, well, what's, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to put in there? Um, and what's relevant for me to think about right now? So there's, like, thinking that has to occur um, when you, you go to the notebook. And I think that's really valuable um, because, rather than just spewing out a whole bunch of stuff, which is what I tend to do on the R Markdown notebook. Yeah. No, I think I'm this I'm on board. I'll give it a shot. Because <laughs> I think there is something about that intermediate um, collecting your thoughts, kind of like in the design thinking book, like just taking the time to articulate what you're thinking isn't itself useful. Or I mean, they were saying it changed the design process, but I think there is a sense of it being useful um, outside of the lab setting. I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm making that up. I can't. I, yeah. Remember I think there that. is something. Yeah. I recall something like that. Yeah. And I mean, regardless, I think collecting your thoughts is a good idea. And I guess when I think about how I've done this in the past, it's usually like I would be iterating through graphs and eventually I would, a narrative would form in my head. And then I would always go to the R Markdown notebook and like write down what I was thinking. Um, and try to essentially write that paragraph of the analysis. But yeah, I think you're right that essentially it's like, it's not quite a draft, but it's some sort of articulation of how you iterated and not just in a like keeping track way, but in a like, here's how my thoughts progressed. And sometimes I need like refresher on that. Yeah. So it's like a little bit like a diary. It's kind of like a diary and, and a notebook, <laughs> you know, it's cause it's like today I thought this was the way to do it, but then it didn't work out. And so tomorrow I'm going to do this, you know, do you record your feelings? Like dear notebook, I was so disappointed today. Like, <laughs> I needed to go home and eat some ice cream. <laughs> I think the closest I come to doing that is like sticking little emojis in there sometimes. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, emo oh, like real emojis because it's digital, not like a hand-drawn, like sad face. No, no, no. Like actual, you know, emojis. Here's a question that's not nearly as relevant, but in work emails, do you use emojis? Sometimes. Depends on uh, who I'm emailing. Yeah. Okay. How about so you? Is that like is there like a company wide policy against it or something? No, there's not. Um, and I do, I do, yeah. I mean, well, anyone in tech, like, there's a strong culture of including gifts in emails. So it's kind of like it, that's on the like doing an emoji is just like a phoning it in versus right, like right. finding the perfect gift to express your excitement and <laughs> anyway yeah takes up some mental energy at the end of the day <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i guess that that wouldn't work in the notebook though so especially not in the in the paper notebook <laughs> right right yeah that's probably good it's a good constraint just stick with your drawing skills i also like that you could like go back and highlight or say like you know as this is baking, I think this point's going to be really important to make versus like things will kind of prioritize themselves as your thought process goes along and you can always like star it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like this. Yeah. Good, 
Good work, Roger. <laughs> well, last thing that's also very important for me is that like it's super easy to just throw an equation in there, right? Um, right. Because I can just yeah. write it out. Um, yeah. And I don't have to like bother with like a you know a ton of LaTeX or something like that. You know. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very good point. I mean, not that I'm throwing around a lot of equations these days, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think, no, like, it's just easy to do, I mean, I might not have equations, but, like, flow diagrams or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. And so just having, I mean, it, it also comes down to that fluency thing. It's, like, just being able to go quickly so that your technology isn't the thing holding you back. Right, like, right. Yeah, this seems like a good solution. So, well, first of all, I think one conclusion is that, is that like, I feel like this is a dream that has, that has been like 10 years in the making you know like really <laughs> like, well, i just feel like you know they promised us tablets and like that we'd be able to do stuff like this but i feel like it did like it didn't really quite it wasn't really quite convenient until like fairly recently yeah um yeah. to do this thing like because you need do like you a, have your own stylus and everything yeah, yeah i got my apple pencil oh sorry sorry <laughs> version two actually yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. So I actually, I had a similar realization recently, which was that I have a um, Chromebook Pixel, of course. Uh-huh. It's a Google fangirl. And um, also with a stylus. And I was reading the Getting Things Done book and reading it sometimes on my Kindle Paperwhite, just, you know, like the small version. And then sometimes on my tablet. And I finally was like, I just like the tablet better. It feels more like reading an actual book than the Paperwhite. Uh-huh. Uh, to the point that I'm like, I think I'm going to get rid of my Kindle, like give it away. Cause... That's funny because most people say the opposite, right? Yeah, like they like the Kindle better because it's simple. Or... Yeah, or no, because yeah. it feels more like it's easier to read, I guess. I think, so the reason why I ended up being not as happy with the tablet as note-taking is that I, I, I recall hearing at some point and then retaining because it seemed... Like it explained my world, which is that kind of like the visual memory of um, where things are on the page, like things like that end up being really important for, I don't know, the memory process. So like retaining information from. And so I think with the smaller paper white, it just felt like not. I don't know. It just it wasn't working for me. And when you're doing an ebook, it can like completely reshuffle the page spacing or not the page spacing, but like what the page looks like um, versus if you're reading a PDF, at least it's like simulating that memory function. Right. Know? Like there's like a spatial organization that you can kind of key to. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cause I realized like I was recently, it was a book I'd read like 10 years ago. I was talking to Michael about it and I was like, <laughs> it actually it's relevant to the podcast because it was um, Chuck Klosterman's Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. Okay. I don't know if you've read the. Do you I know Chuck not. Klosterman? The name sounds familiar. Uh, he's kind of, I don't know, he's kind of like an armchair philosopher type, like modern commenter on society. And um, he, I remember, I remember, and this is like really, this is typical Hillary early days Hillary where I read it like right when I was leaving I think I read it the summer between college and grad school and there was one short essay about how everything had a probability of 50 percent okay <laughs> like, yeah either either it happens or it doesn't so like it's 50 50 right <laughs> which okay. like really bothered me and then the thing that bothered me even more was that it's like in one of the sentences it was like the odds are, or the probability is 50-50. The odds are two to one. Oh, no. And I was like, no, <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> like, so it's like I totally wrote this guy off, which is just silly. I mean, he has like good right. He's like, you know, it's a, this is not the entirety of his character or like. You judged him on one equation. I did. Yeah. yeah. As I said, that was canonical early days, Hillary, where I was just like, ugh. Well, he doesn't understand this. I <laughs> no longer take him seriously. But anyway, but I remembered where it was on the page. Oh, and yes. So okay. I hadn't read it right in a long, I mean, that was 2008. So I hadn't read it in like 10 years, but I was able to like find it quickly in the book because I remembered it was like kind of in the middle and like the bottom, the left side, bottom part of the page and like 
Because Michael had the books. So I was like, Fruit of, like. <laughs> oh, no, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Like, I feel like I do that with textbooks all the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, I just remember, where, like, where the equation was or where the picture was, you know. It's mm-hmm. just, yeah. Exactly. And so, for me, like, Kindle books just ruin that. I think, I think for people who read a lot for entertainment, the Kindle's really good. Like, my mom is just one of these people who, she's, like, the person that the book industry, like, targets. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> There was some article about this where it's like it's like 90% of books are bought by like this really small group of people who are just like voracious readers. And so she's totally one of them and she'll just like zoom through books. She actually when she was in school in the 50s they were doing like it's kind of again <laughs> similar to the it was like they were doing teaching reading on TV. Like it was like this new like thing they were trying. And they would essentially have like a box that lit up the sentence, lit up the words in the sentence and like moved along the page and had the kids read it. And it would like speed up over time. Oh, okay. And so she reads really fast. Like it's like (laughs) one time I did like she would do reading contests with her friends when she was in high school. (laughs) Like I did one with her once and it was like read one page. So we opened the book and I read one page and she had read both. Like we were like done at the same time. (laughs) I was like, I only read one page and you were like the entire visual space there. So anyway. Okay. So for her, Kindle's like perfect because she just kind of like zooms through them and it's not necessarily about like retaining information. It's just kind of like an entertaining, you know. Yeah. Like murder mystery. Right. That's another thing with this group of people. Apparently they, it's like disproportionate people into like murder mysteries or like detective series. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So anyway, so I am not like that. So I usually will buy like reference material on a Kindle. And so it just doesn't really. It, it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And then if I want to do something for entertainment, I listen to the audiobook. Oh, okay. I feel like, yeah, like the Kindle or tablets in general are good if you see a book as a stream of words. Uh, but which I think novels tend to be. Exactly. But other books are not. Yep. Yeah. Bingo. So, um. Glad right. we sorted that. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> Getting things done was like on the border. You know, it's like, oh, it's like kind of a stream of words, but then also I want to retain this in a, you know, more visual way. So I switched to the tablet and I was like, you know, as much as I was into the e ink world, I just don't think this is for me. Like, <laughs> so yeah, radical changes. So just to tie up the notebook topic though. Um... <laughs> Uh, I, I just think that um, we kind of the uh, you know the reproducibility I think is obviously important, um, but it doesn't. And I think, but we kind of combined a bunch of tools into one, um, and it doesn't. I feel like the it's good for one thing, but not good for kind of like the thinking about what you're doing part. I, um, yeah, and so I told, uh, you've convinced me. I've never thought about this before. Yeah. You've convinced me. <laughs> so anyway, I just uh, and I feel like um, like I think the, the things like the Jupyter notebooks and like other notebook products, like you know, like like I think Mathematica has something like or MATLAB. They both they, they're like notebook style. I think they're kind of you know they're kind of designed. I think a little bit for this kind of working. It's like very stream of. I feel like they're really designed for a stream of consciousness. Right. Uh, and so I think that so I think the reproducibility people don't like that right because it's like things can change and the state can change and you know whatever. But I think fundamentally though the issue is that a they're not great for like mixed media, and b they're still kind of linear. I, I feel like yeah um, yeah so yeah and like I think articulating it this way I think the qualm I've always had is that it conflates it conflates stream of consciousness thinking with like the final report. So, like, people will send the Jupyter Notebook around, and it's, like, always the first one is, like, importing the data. And it's just, like, this is, like, not relevant. Right. <laughs> <laughs> For, like, anyone reading, you know. The, and then, um, and yeah, and then just, like, I, the number of times I've seen, like, sentences, like, well, that's not good. Let's move on to another graph. You know, it's just, it's not. Yeah. It's, like, you could have spared me that. Yeah, exactly. Like, Versus even the physical notebook, at that point, you've thought to put two graphs together or like you've starred the things you think are important. And Right. Yeah. I say physical, but it can be a digital physical. 
Are you gonna are you gonna start cutting and pasting? I uh, yeah, I'm probably gonna try this. this <laughs> well, do you, do you have an update on uh, on getting things done? It's going great. Yes, it's going great. You yeah, your I, have, I, still, I haven't I haven't finished the book yet, um, but <laughs> whatever. Um, I know. Well, I, I actually really want. It's like Roger. I just don't have time anymore. <laughs> I don't have a lot of time these days. I hear you. That's like such a cop out. I hate it when people say that, but I don't, it has not. I have not found the need to prioritize it, and that's okay. Yeah, you know that. Reminds, I was at a meeting uh, one time, and someone, someone that you know, but will remain nameless, uh, had to leave early. Uh huh. And um, and he just, I said, I said, why do you have to leave early? And he said, well, I prioritized other things over this. <laughs> I'm like, that's true. <laughs> you did. Oh, I really want to know who that is. But I'll tell you later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you one guess, and then I'll tell you later. Yeah, but uh, I, yeah. So anyway, but you, yeah. So you prioritized other things. Yeah, I did. But um, no, like I the the physical thing I've been really liking. Like for this conference, I printed out. So like the big thing I'm doing, and this I don't even know if this is like the getting things done system exactly, but. For things that I have to remember to do that are one-offs, I've just been writing them. I have these little, like, I have essentially, like, a notepad with these small pieces of paper. Um, of course, like, lots of opinions on that. But <laughs> So I write down, I just, like, scribble down, oh, I need to, you know, upload my slides by 11 p.m. today. Um, and then I just put it in the folder of that day. So I have, like, like scribble it down, put it in the folder, and so then I open up the folder and it's like all these reminders. And then again, for the conference, I printed out the emails with all the information I needed and like highlighted the relevant Oh, sections. you totally yeah. printed those emails. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it happened. I So someone on Twitter, man, I should look up the person's name. Oh, Andy, uh, Andy Mitchell? Yeah, Andy Mitchell like did the video of um, like him like like gearing up every day with his different folders and so i saw that he had highlighted his emails and i was like genius so i went and like highlighted my <laughs> i found the one highlighter i still have in my apartment <laughs> i think i culled my highlighter collection at some point so um i'll put a so, link to that uh that video in the show notes it's just pretty amazing he's got like a whole thing yeah, no, it's pretty cool. And then I had, um, I have like, I didn't have like a manila folder, which I really wish I had, but I did have this like kind of plastic, like portfolio case thing. Um, and so I just put everything I needed for the conference in there, like the to do's and the highlighted emails and like put that in my bag when this conference was down at Stanford. So I stayed overnight in Palo Alto. So I went down and like had that all on hand and then I had printouts for the session. I did a like lunchtime breakout session, so I had printouts for that. Of course, I got there and like the partner I was working with like didn't need it. Like she printed it out herself. So I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, well, I was prepped anyway. So yeah, it's going well. I can definitely tell how when I like for the conference, it was nice ahead of time to be like, okay, I don't have to worry about logistics now. Like that is taken care of. Right. Um, you, you pre-fetched all that stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that was, I, I felt the cognitive benefit of that um, and definitely felt more relaxed. Yeah. I want to ask you one thing though. Like, so today is, you know, it's like March 6th as we record and you, and you go into your, you know, your six folder uh, and you open it up. I don't know what it, well, let's say let, for the sake of argument, let's say there's like all these pieces of paper in there. Like, how does that make you feel? Does that give you anxiety or does it like make you feel good or or what? Well, I think because it's early days, it makes me feel good because I'm like, oh, finally, I'm going to get this stuff done. And it it's like, it's like, yay, a to-do list is already populated for me. So right. Like, bam, bam, bam. Yeah. But I'm sure when it's not new anymore, it'll probably feel worse. Um, <laughs> I mean, part of I, I'm just imagining it right now, but a part of me feels like when I see all these papers like falling out of the folder, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like I'll just have all this anxiety. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. You have to be, I mean, I think my next challenge is going to be like figuring out how to distribute those like oh i'm going to i'm committing to doing this on tuesday and i mean i think probably everyone at one point has overcommitted themselves <laughs> so really i could see myself putting like a ton in like yeah i'm going to get all this stuff off my plate and then halfway through the week like totally burning out so you know what i think you you're going to need what a, a separate folder system <laughs> no that 
the days of the week is only one of like several folders. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. So like there's monthly folders and then there's some other kind of like miscellaneous like one day projects. And then there's something like the tickler file, which is supposed to like tickle your memory. But I don't know. Like I haven't gotten to those sections of the book, nor have I gotten to the day of the week one. But that one I just decided to like go rogue and implement. On oh, my own. Okay. <laughs> But also doing it for my personal life has been way easier versus doing it for work. I haven't like set it up at work yet. And I anticipate that one would be harder because so much it's so dynamic. And so having the to do's, I can see it really important for like, remember to prep for this meeting type stuff, Um, which I think a lot of people put on their calendar. But I don't know why. Like, for me, I feel like seeing the paper would feel better than, like, having it haunt me on the calendar. <laughs> yeah. Because you see it, like, all week on yes, the calendar. that's what I Versus do, Versus yeah. with the paper system, you just see it, like, the day that you're supposed to do it. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, anyway. Again, I'm sure that there's a digital version where you, like, don't see it every day. <laughs> so, this is solvable in other ways. For me, it's really about... I like taking the note versus typing it in. That's just lower friction. And I I feel like I get physical, like writing it down, whatever. It's tactile. Kind of, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So I, I can totally see that. I think the other risk of the system is like writing down the same note like 50 times. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it popped in my head again and like, like distributing it way too much. But then that feels good because you do it and then you're like, oh, I can like crumple up this to do. That's the other thing. I like crumple the paper when I'm done with it. And that feels like like I nailed it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you're literally crushing it. Exactly. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Can't, you can't do that on an iPad. No. I mean, I guess when you put things in the trash icon, it goes like like for a yeah, second. Not quite as not, satisfying. Not the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I've gotten, uh, you know, since, um, sorry, I'm moving on now. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> since our last conversation, I get I got another email from Cran telling me my package having problems. Oh. A different package, that is. Oh no! And, uh, I want so what so I want to talk about one thing because you mentioned last time how like R doesn't have the, what's like why do packages have problems if R doesn't have any like breaking changes right and um, it it occurs to me that like so and because it happened with this package that like Cran is doing a lot of tests now that I can't like do <laughs> basically you know it's like like it used to be like you ran your R command check. Um, and like I can do that, so I know that if I passed it on my computer, it's like a pretty good chance it's going to pass on the CRAN servers, right? Right. But like, there we're way beyond that now, and uh, and so like for example, they first started testing on other platforms, which is great because it's like you know other people use other platforms, and I can't test other platforms, so it's good that they do that. But then of course I can't do it, so if it fails on another platform, like I don't know what to do about it, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. There's, I think. I'm sure that like many of the bigger developers just have those systems one way or another. Yeah, I mean, like with virtual machines, you can always install Windows or you know whatever. Right, um, or just literally have other laptops. Right, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> like fire up, yeah. But now they're but okay, so that's different because it's 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 in some sense easy to reproduce an operating system, right? You just get it. Um, but now they're doing like other tests, like they're checking your if you have C code in a package, they check your C code. Um, which is kind of cool, actually. So they like compile it into like an intermediate language it's called LLVM, um, and they just like they, they statically analyze it. So they don't run it, but they just look at it, uh, you know, through some program and to see if there's going to be any problems uh, in the C code, uh, which which is cool. But like I don't, I can't do that. Like I don't have the tool that does that. And so like now I've got one package that has C code in it, and it ran into some memory protection problem, and it's like okay, I just have to kind of guess like what yeah <laughs> like what the, yeah. i mean it gives you a little hint of like where the problem would might be but now i just have to like change it and like recompile it and then like i don't know if i'm gonna pass this test like it's just oh that's I, funny so weird. you're literally like using crayon as your testing environment well i guess unless i missed something i don't i don't think there's a tool out there that like i can run yeah um, i do that at work too i think do we talk about that before no <laughs> i frequently and it's like i feel like it's such bad commit practice but i'm usually too lazy to like set up whatever remote 
like execution environment we have. Um, and so, and it's just, that's like work, right? And so I'll just deploy it in a staging environment. Like, uh, like I'll deploy it and make sure that it's not like breaking the production system, but it's like easier for me to just do that than produce the same, like other coworkers are like, well, you should just set this up locally and you can iterate faster. And I'm like, nah, it's not worth it. (laughs) 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 So it means that every, it's like, I think every time we deploy it, like rebuilds the containers. Like it definitely is not like, it's clearly slower, but. But it's like already in place. Exactly. Like I think the last time I tried to do it, it I needed like the new Pi Arrow distribution or something. I was like, I'm not doing this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just another maintenance cost, right? Like that's true. This. Yeah, you got to think about the whole picture. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> so yeah, so I'm using Cran as my testing yeah. machine. Basically, it means that you probably it's like you end up littering your commit history with a lot of like forgot comma. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly but then you just squash it all before you merge and then it doesn't matter they all get erased it's true yeah um (laughs) i actually don't i don't do that because it doesn't matter to me but uh but i would do that i think yeah if you were like a real software developer right yeah (laughs) which i'm definitely not yeah Uh, but uh i don't know i so anyway so that's kind of like where cran has gone which i think has made it I wouldn't say more difficult. It's just made it a different experience, you know, um, where there used to be this kind of like one-to-one experience where like if I pass for me, that's going to pass for them. Um, but now it's like nowhere near the case. I mean, I think if you have pure R code in your package, like it's, then it's pretty much fine, you know, I think. But if you're putting in other compiled languages in there, it's like, it's totally different. And which I mean, for good reason, because those are way more dangerous, obviously. But um, so, but anyway, so now I've got this package that, fails a test that I can't reproduce. So, uh, I'm just, so, I, so I just like, I edited some code and I'm like, this looks like the right thing to do. <laughs> and uh, it still compiles and it passes my tests. So, yeah. you know, let it rip, you know. <laughs> Wait, is there a way to submit to CRAN? Like, so uh, surely the testing is first automated, right? Like, yes. You're not like bothering some R developer, core R developer, who's like, "Great, Roger submitted again. Like, click, like, run the program." Uh, I I don't believe so. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't have like hard evidence, but I don't. I believe it's automated because I think they check every package with compiled code. So obviously, yeah, yeah. yeah. So hopefully, <laughs> that would be pretty funny if you're using like a some member of R core as your like testing environment. Right. That would. <laughs> That would be a, a faux pas. <laughs> so, so Thomas Calavera is the guy who wrote the kind of C code checker. Uh, and I actually saw him give a talk on this at UseR last year. Um, and so, and the email that you get from Cran actually says, like, if you have questions, send him an email. Oh, <laughs> Which funny. I think might have been a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Did he talk about that specifically? It's like, no, he did. Whoops. But, um... <laughs> System design failure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know how many packages there are with. I think the big thing now is that, like, I think the packages like mine that have like direct C code in them are increasingly rare, um, because pretty much everyone is now. If you're building a new package, you're probably going to use something like RCPP, yeah, uh, yeah, which doesn't have. Which really doesn't have these kinds of. It was kind of designed to circumvent these kinds of mem- like basic problems, um, and so I think it's uh, maybe not as. It's not an issue for like newer packages, just which because like they're not going to write just straight C code, right. Um, yeah, so. is that? I wonder if that's true for like the tidyverse suite. I think they all use RCPP. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I that's I think... a pretty heavy dependency on like because Dirk Edobutel, he has like a he has a day job. Yeah, well, I think yeah, RCPP. It's like it's it's part of the infrastructure of R now. At some point, like if anything happens there, it's like, the whole thing is it's all, it's over basically. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I wonder how that works. So uh, I mean, I think uh, if, if it's like the number one package. Far by far and away in R. In oh yeah, of, yeah. I wonder so. if it's just is it? I I wonder if that package is relatively like simple. I I don't want to say that. I don't want to suggest it's not a ton of work, but like I don't. I guess I don't know. But that seems like a lot of work for one like person. Yeah, for one person without necessarily as much institutional support. 
I, you know, I don't know. I, I imagine it can't be that simple because just keeping up with the C and the C plus plus language is like a job in and of itself, and like keeping up with all the different compilers and, um, you know, and the and the additions to the language, and so I feel like that alone would be would make it kind of a challenge. But, um, so I don't know what like what his situation is in terms of how he supports the work, but uh, he, uh, I don't know. It seems to be going well for. He's been doing it for a long time now, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Doing God's work. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so I've I, I'm gonna send my package off to Cred and see what happens. <laughs> see what happens. Yeah, yeah that, that that sounds really unpleasant. Really. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any suggestions? I don't really have a better idea. Really, I guess I could. No, I mean, as as I said, this is kind of what I do internally. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's uh, interesting. Um, on the topic of R. Mm-hmm. There was, I don't know if you saw this tweet. Um, so, Marco Schianini, I'm going to say, on Twitter, took a picture from Auckland, University of Auckland, where apparently, I don't know, he, there's a CD of R version 1.0. Really? That is an, encased in like a display case. No. And it has the signatures of all the R core members on it. Wow. That's amazing, and there's like a it's like a museum thing. There's like a little in, the description next to it. It's a CD signed by the original R core team. That's amazing. Wait, weren't you in? This is Australia. Oh wait, no, this Auckland? is in New Zealand. Yeah, New, New Zealand. Zealand. Yes. Oh gosh, oh, the hate mail we're gonna get. <laughs> 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 that's like that's like about the biggest faux pas you can make in those parts. <laughs> The only one worse is suggesting that someone personally is from the wrong one. And then it's like... <laughs> I think maybe confusing Australia and Austria is another one. So, Oh, I don't know about that. I don't think there's as much bad blood, you know. <laughs> anyway, the, um... <laughs> the, CD, the CD says R1.0.0, 2000, February 29th. I mean, the point I was going to make is that you could have visited it yourself and you didn't. I didn't know it existed. Like, I had no idea. Yeah, how much regret do you feel now? No, I mean, not that much. <laughs> to be honest, uh, I think. I mean, I think that the picture on Twitter is almost as good. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna dig that up. Did they tag our account? The no, they, they t- I got tagged somehow just because it says R1.0 on it. Right. Um, someone, someone was like, "This is Roger's dream. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't care if it works." <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so, That's pretty cool. I was. Yeah. Oh yeah, I was shocked. So. um isn't one of the R core developers at University of Auckland? Well, that's where R was started. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, that's Rossi right. Haka is there. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, and I guess it started when I guess Robert Gentleman was like visiting there, and that's how they started R. So. And the sorry, Ihaka, that's how you pronounce it. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, he's not involved at all now, right? Not not really. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, so. I feel like there was some like bad blood there, although. I don't think there was. I don't know if there was bad blood. Uh, yeah, or not bad blood, but just like a disagreement on the direction. Well, I think um, the the you know once it became more mainstream, um, in terms of and and like kind of corporations started kind of getting involved. Um, then I think there was more kind of disagreement about the direction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. So um, anyway, it's uh, an interesting little tidbit, though. Do you, anything else do you want to talk about? I guess I could talk more about the Women in Data Science Conference in general. Yeah, actually, yeah. do you want to just uh, summarize it? Yeah, I mean, it's like it's from uh, Stanford, and the original organizer, Margaret Margot Gerritsen. Okay. Yeah. Um, she so yeah, she I believe she's coming from like a computer science background. Um, so it's it's definitely like a. I mean, she's now like one of the deans, um, senior associate dean of the School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. So at Stanford, yeah, mm-hmm. okay. yeah, at Stanford, and so um, yeah, I guess actually I didn't realize this. So she's like she specializes in renewable and fossil energy production. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, um, but she, oh yeah, but her her PhD is in scientific computing and computation, computational mathematics. So it's got a bit of a, like, kind of like, I don't CS bend isn't quite the right way to put it, but it's definitely not like a statistics 
bend by any stretch of the imagination, even though there's plenty of people with statistics background there. Um, but so I think she was the original like passion, you know, driver, as you said. Um, and then the other two co-organizers are Judy Logan and Karen Mathis. Um, and so they all are like a huge amount of passion for this conference. And so I think if this is the fourth one and the idea was just like, Oh, like, let's have a women in data science conference and showcase what's happening there. And, you know, it's like a ton of sponsors, a ton of collaboration, and it's just like a really professionally run conference. Um, and they do, they did a really cool thing where they have essentially like event hosts in other areas where they live stream the conference. And then those people might have like their own little, um, I don't know, version of the conference. Oh yes. I, I've seen, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, I mean, they said it was, like, over 100,000 people, you know, in aggregate, yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it's a cool vibe. I really enjoy it. It's really energizing. And then they also just do good, like, branding, or I don't even know how to call it, but they have really professionally done videos, and they have interviews, and they just do a lot of stuff around it. Um, It's super well run. So it was, like, a huge thrill to be asked to talk. um, Yeah. And... Yeah, and I got to go first, so that was nice. I just get it, <laughs> get it done, enjoy the rest. Yeah, they actually, have a podcast so, too. I see. Yeah, they have a podcast, and the live stream is available online, so you can watch it now. Um, I'm at an hour and ten minutes in. Okay, I'll put a link to that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but um, actually, the first, the dean of, um, I think, just the the dean of the whole school. Let me. I remember her name, but let me like, let me make sure I Gen- get Jennifer Widom. Widom, yeah. yeah. Which is she? She's like dean. Dean of engineering. Dean. Okay, so yeah, the dean of engineering, Jennifer Widom, was the first person to speak. And what was really interesting about that and relevant to you is that she was like one of the first people to do a, a MOOC, if you will. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, and so like she was like directly interfacing with Andrew Ng and you know going through that, and so um, it it was a reminder. Stanford's been so supportive of stuff like that, which is you know like they have their angle and it's like a super business connected and you know they're into stuff like that. So you know there's obviously pros and cons to that institutional positioning, but I think this feels kind of like a pro yeah (laughs) in general and then the cool thing too was that and she's a really good speaker and she talked about how um she wanted to do like she's been trying to do these massive open in-person courses okay (laughs) so she's been like traveling all around the world to like developing countries and just places that might not have as much access to training and data she's like databases person um but like data engineering and data science and she's been going and teaching these classes all over so she describes like what she's been doing and it was was really impressive she was like oh it's like an empty nester not sure what to do so like (laughs) i started like traveling around (laughs) Going to like 150 countries or something. not that high, but like a lot of countries. And um, yeah, she she did. She's doing really cool stuff. So um, and then actually, you know, the other the speaker right after me, um, whose name I would totally butcher. So like, yeah, <laughs> Marze, uh, maybe I shouldn't say it. Marze Gassemi. Yeah, yeah. She was really, I really liked her talk, um, and I was just happened to be kind of sitting near her, and we started chatting, and like, it was really interesting to me how similar, she works a lot with interfacing with doctors, and then I obviously work with interfacing with, like, stylists for fashion, and the types of challenges we were running into were really similar, um, which is like, ultimately, you care about the next person after the doctor after the stylist like the client or the patient but there's sort of this intermediary you know expert and figuring out how to train like you want to build models that ultimately are about the patient but you can't ignore the fact that there's a specialist and you need to also be building the models for them and so doing something like radically different like asking people how much they drink for example it's like pretty 
kind of pretty obvious that people would lie about that. <laughs> like, even if they, you know, I think there's like lots of research on this that people just lie. And so she was saying like, it was really hard to think about like, how do you kind of tell a doctor, you know, asking this question doesn't actually give us that much signal. Like we can predict whether they drink on a lot of other stuff, but like, you just can't expect a doctor who's gotten like a ton of training to ask about drinking to just like be like, okay, I won't ask that anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> At least not on like the drop of a hat. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. So essentially like the, the pitch to the doctors has to be really consistent. So, I mean, it comes down to that. Like, like I was doing the whole like design thinking and, you know, empathy with the user and which she obviously had thought about, but just, you know, she was really interested in how we were trying to do that with Stitch Fix where, you know, it's similar stuff where you have experts who are used to, you know, finding signal in certain things and that might not be as like, I mean, basically it's not that the thing they think of doesn't have signal, like knowing whether or not someone drinks obviously is like extremely important for knowing what health effects they might have. But like asking it might not be the most effective way at getting at it. So we totally run into that too, where it's like, you know, asking someone about their style, you're not really going to get anything that makes much sense half the time because it's just hard to articulate. And you also have your aspirational, like, you know, asking people if they work out, like, like, do you want workout clothes? It's just like, well, obviously everyone's going to lie about right. that. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so is that really like at all? And so, yeah, I found this real correlation between people saying that they want to ask a question, but what they mean is they want that information, but you, you can't just tell them, Oh, well, we'll get you that information without asking the question. That's like not, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. It's not. And it's just not like, it's not being considerate of like the person where they're coming from. You know? Right. Yeah. It is. I think it is difficult to separate the idea, at least initially to separate the idea of like, it's useful to have this information as opposed to it's useful to have what they say about the information, you know? Because uh, it, it's not always not always true that the latter, you know, it's useful to know what they say about it. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I can see how that would be difficult. And it's like what's interesting is that I think with fashion, people would be pretty open to hearing like, "Oh, like it seems like you like this," or you know, like it's it's kind of like, "Oh, that's fun." They like, yeah, they're they're right. I never thought about that, but I do like that. Whereas like if it's like, "Oh, we see that you actually probably binge drink all the time," like. <laughs> that's like much more like ah that's terrible right. so yeah it's so it also maybe it puts the physician in an awkward position if you're not pretty transparent about like well this person said they never drink and everything we see says that they drink heavily so they might you know be like having some issues and not really honest with themselves about it and so like yeah anyway it's she, but she, I really liked her talk, and I told her I was like, "You got me interested in like health statistics for the first time in a while." Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was still like on my like you know detox, if you will. Right. <laughs> like I, I just really, she approached it in such a smart way. She really approached it the way I would think of a data scientist approaching it, for lack of a better term. Where like she was, or like I don't know, someone who really thinks about machine learning because she was like talking about bias and data sets, and like she put it in terms that would be very comfortable for a machine learning person to like grok the problem um and I just thought it was brilliant because I was like oh yeah you're right and like I don't feel like I ever totally thought about this stuff in that framing so um yeah I really recommend her talk and there was lots of other good talks that's just one that like Oh, the other, the other reason I'm like promoting her is because she was so cute. She came up and I was like talking about being a district. She's like, that's my dream job. Like, you know, if I ever leave academia, she was like, either, either there or Etsy. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, little do you know. <laughs> I have a lot to tell you. Yeah. Right. I know. <laughs> she was just like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> it was really cute. So you might have been the same person. It's like I yeah she basically later she was like this is like me you know in an alternate universe right yeah. yeah we also had kind of similar speaking style yeah it was just yeah it was a fun connection to make so all right is this your first time at this conference no, no I no, went right? two yeah. years ago yeah I had a I I held a breakout session two years ago um so they do these lunchtime breakout sessions that are pretty fun it's also fun because like there's a lot of undergraduates who go to this conference um i think they're really deliberate about trying to get people from different places 
And so um, there's an undergrad, like it, it was mostly undergraduates I found in the one we are doing, but also last year, I guess it was some undergrads and then some people in, you know, similar positions. And last time I did, I think I did it on A-B testing. Um, I'm 90% sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was my second time at the conference and um, yeah, it's, you know, it's a good time. Cool. Did you talk about our podcast? Because it really, that's all I care about. I know. I so I did, and I put up a slide of your like extensive write up of that like design thinking exercise of the commute times. Oh, okay. But I actually, when I said it in the talk, I I had a flash of like, oh, she didn't introduce me as the co-host of this podcast, and so I was just kind of like, oh, I talked about this on my podcast, and so then I had to like kind of do a quick intro. So I called you my friend. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I did a podcast with my friend Roger, which is true, but it's just maybe not the most descriptive like it's okay. formulation. I, that'll yeah. be I don't mind being described as such. That's a, that's your highest honor. Yeah, so. Truly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Professor of Biostatistics and Hillary's friend. <laughs> 